Hey, I am a former pastor of the Mother Church for this church, North Shore Baptist, now North Shore Community. Um, been out of the saddle there for about eight years and uh, been working at a daughter church in Monroe, Cascade Community Church, for the last five years and finally retired last June. So it's been a year, mostly traveling. It's, you know, the dam broke kind of thing, and all of the plans that we had uh, kind of came to fruition in, in one year. We're kind of, what, tired of traveling? <laughs> is that really true? I think it is, yeah. My wife, Charm, is, is here in the service again today, and uh, her mother, Bobby Joe, my uh, mother in love, she calls me son in love, so it's great. Let me tell you a little bit about Steve, how far back I go with him. I don't know if you've heard this story or not, but uh, he used to babysit for us back in Green Bay. And uh, he was from a little town called Sugarbush, kind of a Belgian Catholic community, basically a spot in the road. But um, everything, life in that community revolved around the tavern. What was the name of that tavern? Do you remember? I'm sure he's told you lots of stories about that whole uh, part of life. But anyway, our kids, it was back when we first started getting um, a return on cans, you know, where you could get five cents per aluminum can. And uh, we were gone. He was babysitting. Our boys said, let's, let's go out and collect cans and make some money. He said, oh, you guys, I know where we can get lots of cans. <laughs> so he took him out to Sugarbush behind this tavern. There was this huge dump of cans, and they filled garbage bags, big black garbage bags, filled our garage with garbage bags. And we, we came home and the place smelled like a brewery. <laughs> and, and then we catch our youngest son out there and he's got a can and he's pouring all of the remainder in all the beer cans to see what beer tastes like. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. <laughs> I could tell you lots more stories. Uh, about pillow fights and feathers everywhere and on and on. We've loved Steve for a long time. Uh, For many years he was like a son to us in uh, that he ate a lot of meals at our house and we did a lot of things together. And finally, in his late 30s, he met Wonder Woman, Pam. And it was the best choice other than Jesus he ever made. Um, and they've had a, a, a marvelous family, and uh, the last era has been here, um, last part of their ministry and, and life together. And it's fun that they're out on sabbatical right now. I'm rejoicing with them. Austria is awesome. I hope they, they see a lot of it. All right. Um, last week, we opened up on the, the kingdom message, and... Let me just ask one question. What did Jesus call the gospel? The kingdom of heaven is here. Repent. That was it. And that's what he said the good news was. And we kind of lamented that that's dropped out of the mix of the modern gospel. Um, We somehow think we're smarter than Jesus and that we have the right to tweak the message and remove things and add things. And, you know, for our culture to make it user-friendly. And then we wonder why our gospel isn't powerful. Why doesn't it change lives the way it used to? Why is it that it seems to inoculate rather than recreate in our lives. Let me ask you this. Do you, do you really believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation? Romans 1.16. Do 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So would you say your salvation experience has been about power? Has it really changed you? And is it still changing you? And then there's the, the verse in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels. The power is not of ourselves, but of God. This recreating power that is turning our lives into a, a treasure, a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. Well, if the gospel is so powerful... Why are so many of us as believers battling with depression, anxiety, fears, debilitating mental issues? Just like the world. If the gospel is so powerful, um, why are so many Christian marriages struggling? Why are so many Christians feeling are finding it so hard to live together and to resolve their issues and conflicts and problems? If the gospel is so powerful, why are we losing so many of our children to the world? Why do so many kids come up through our Sunday school, go to youth group, go to camp, go to youth rallies, come to services, hear hundreds of sermons in their youth, Leave home, walk away, and not look back. Where's the power in that? Why do we still say the gospel is the power of God unto salvation when our kids turn their back on it? Many of them. More than 50% of kids raised in churches like this walk away. If the gospel is so powerful, why are so many of our churches caught up in conflict? Why has local church experience for so many become dangerous? Why are so many people hurt by the church if the gospel is so powerful? Why is it hard to find a safe church? What I'd like to do today is, is pursue that, that question and a solution to that. I'd, I'd like to attempt to re-envision a more powerful, life-transforming, supernatural gospel. I'd like to see the same things Jesus saw, <laughs> that the apostles saw. I'd like to see what has happened throughout history. When God's Spirit has been let loose among His people and powerful, wonderful, miraculous things happen. And people are really changed, not just superficially changed, not, not just religiously changed, but changed into the image of their leader and lover, Jesus, the Lord of all creation. My suggestion is this. Could it be that in tweaking the gospel, in thinking we are smarter than Jesus, in modifying the gospel, in adapting the gospel to our culture, in our day, that we have actually reduced its power? Is that possible? Let's take a look, but before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that your anointing would come upon this message, that you would speak by your Spirit in ways we would sense. I pray that we would know that you're speaking, that we would hear your voice, that everybody in this room would know that the living God of all creation is here among us and speaking to us. Holy Spirit, move in powerful ways. Convict, convince Bring us to repentance and fresh surrender, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. The popular gospel 
uh, since I opened that can of worms. Let me just talk about it for a, a bit. Um, when, when I talk to kids at youth retreats or youth rallies or men at men's retreats or churches like this, one of the questions that I usually ask is this. Who is the smartest person who's ever lived in your judgment? And before I say what I've said in introduction, um, that's a question that usually gets um, Albert Einstein, um, Madam Carey, um, you know, people like that, um, Bill Gates. Those kinds of answers. All right. Um, I understand. We have had a lot of incredible, very, very smart people in our world. And particularly in the, in the field of science and mathematics and computers and so forth, there are a lot of really smart people. But somehow, most of us do not think of Jesus Christ as super intelligent, as super intelligent we, we think of him as good. We think of him as merciful, loving, sacrificial. But we, somehow it doesn't, now what does the scripture say? In Jesus are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All! He's the smartest person who ever walked this planet. He's the one who designed your eye. He's the one who gave you the capacity to think, designed your brain and its, all of its intricacies. He's the one who designed your heart to pump blood through your entire body all the time without you ever thinking about it or deciding for it to do that. He's the one who made your lungs work automatically, and you don't think about taking a breath, you just breathe. On and on and on. Your hearing, your taste buds, your smell, your nose. Um, we, we could go you know, into all the wonders of how we are made. And it was Jesus Christ who designed that. The planet, the galaxies, the ecosystem, the animals, the fish, the bugs. I love bugs. Um, they are wonderful creations. <laughs> um, even spiders, right, Charm? I like spiders. I like to name them if I find them in the house. She likes to kill them. I don't, I don't get that. <laughs> uh, what I'm saying is this. The one who designed your brain designed the gospel. He could have put it any way he wanted. He's the living word. He's the word of God. John 1. Right? But the way he chose to put it was the kingdom of heaven is here. Repent. The smartest person should, in the room, should be the one who says, ah, uh, this is the way it should work. This is the way it needs to be. The, these are the ingredients that have to be there if we're going to have a powerful gospel. Now, what we do is this. We say, well, I've got a master's degree in marketing. I've got my doctor's degree in sales. And I'm really good at this. I'm a graphic designer. I can make the gospel look good. For this generation. I know, I know what turns people on. I know what colors people respond to. I can make the gospel zing. And somehow Jesus and his message and his intelligence and his purposes are left out of it in the process of getting the good news out our way. So what we've chosen to do in our popular gospel is to make it a gift. The timeline is, is the person's life. So here's my life. 
the timeline, and I meet, I encounter the gospel through the message of the cross. Is the gospel and the work of Jesus at the cross all part of one another? Yes, of course. So, faith is required. In other words, I need to believe. I need to put my trust in Jesus. So, I meet him at the cross. We call that salvation. But in our world today, what we've done is make following optional. We don't even mention following when we introduce people to Jesus. For the most part. I mean, some people do. But most of us offer Jesus as a gift to get rid of the burden, the guilt, the shame of sin. Jesus never did that. This idea that you don't have to follow. Following is something you can think about and maybe do later in follow-up or discipleship. That is a false idea. It's a wrong idea. Because what it does is it postpones following. And that's what's supposed to happen when you meet Jesus. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Exactly. All right. So what we've done is we've said, well, it's a gift. You can not follow. If you believe, that's what saves you. And you can decide on following Jesus later. So we've got this problem of waiting for the next shoe to drop. Um, and many of us have waited a long time. I, I've met, I was talking to a woman uh, a couple of weeks ago who said, um, my husband prayed the prayer ten years ago. And I've been waiting for the change to take place. And so far, nothing's happened. But he comes to church. That's, that's encouraging. Um, a lot of us... I, I've been a pastor for 45 years, so... In our kinds of churches where the Bible is preached and, and uh, the gospel is presented, one of the things that, that has happened is that we, uh, we've been waiting for something next to happen, something new, something powerful. And in all of our evangelical churches, we've got a lingo, a language for this. So in charismatic or Pentecostal churches, we talk about the second blessing or the baptism of the Spirit. And that's what they think will jumpstart non-following believism. And sometimes it does. And then in, in more of the, the independent Bible church or Baptist churches, um, we talk about rededication or being filled with the Spirit or renewal, or revitalization, right? And what are we talking about? We're talking about this, this problem, this gap between saying we know Jesus because we prayed a prayer and accepted His grace and His forgiveness, but it isn't working. Nothing's really changing in our lives. So we, we, we're frustrated with that. Now we know something else has got to happen. We've got to get serious, we, we say. Or we've got to rededicate our lives. Or recommit our lives. And then all across the Christian church today, Christians who are praying, praying Christians, are praying for revival. Why? Because this exists in our churches in, in a big time way. I was talking to a pastor a couple months ago who said, as far as I can figure out, about 15% of my people are following Jesus. They all say they believe in Jesus. But about 15% are following Jesus. And he was heartbroken about that. And he should be. All of us should be heartbroken about that kind of statistic. This, this issue is a very, very serious issue. Because this is what's at stake. The average person may visit a church sometime in their, their adult life. Okay? 
Most likely they'll visit a church like VBS or youth group or something like that. But when they come into our fellowship, our community, and they find out that you don't have to follow Jesus. You can just believe in him. And that's all you need to do. I mean, it, that's enough to get you to heaven and get you free from your guilt and your, the penalty for your sin. And we call that grace. To most people who have a brain, that, that sounds like a good deal. And many, many people pray a prayer or make a commitment on that basis. I will get rid of my sin issue. I'll get ready for death. And, you know, someday I'll, I'll die and, and I'll go to heaven because I have received Jesus. But we find out in our churches that it's okay not to follow Jesus. And that's a huge problem because that was our problem to start with. In other words, that's what we were supposed to have been saved from, not following Jesus. <laughs> when we meet him at the cross, he is supposed to become our leader. Not just our forgiver. That's what the cross was designed to do. Bring us into the kingdom. The cross is the door to the realm where God rules. Where God is the leader. Now let me, uh, let me take us a little bit further. Here's, here's the issue. You've got a non-functioning salvation in probably the majority of evangelicals. The kingdom of self we defined last week as being um, consumed with wanting my own way, being independent, self-sufficient, self in control. And when you don't start there, when you ignore that, you don't pay attention to what's really wrong, you just talk about sin as doing wrong things, making bad choices, being weak, being human, um, but not rebellious, then what happens is you offer the gift of salvation to be received by faith without surrender. And guess what happens? Nothing. Person comes into supposedly the kingdom, but it doesn't work. Because the Christian life does not work without surrender. It does not work without surrender. You who have been Christians for some time, you know that. If you do not live in perpetual surrender to Jesus Christ, if you are not in a pathway of repentance where you continually give over the control of your life to Him on a daily, step-by-step -step process, you do not change. In other words, you and I are very capable of taking back what we said we were going to give to Jesus. I want you to lead me. I want you to be in control of my life. Wait a minute. Oops, I forgot. I, I need to hang on to that because that's what I really want to do. And I think you might get in the way. And Jesus, i sorry about this, but I think you might spoil my fun. I might not like where you lead me. We call that carnal... Christianity, and we've kind of normalized it. It's really the same as what we were supposed to have been saved from. It's just got the blessing of I prayed a prayer. But what we're after is the kingdom of God, which means God's rule in my life, God governing my life, the kingdom coming in me as it is in heaven. All right. That is what we call spiritual living, and it is real, and it's very viable, but you've got to keep the definitions. 
straight. What is salvation supposed to do? Well, it's supposed to get you ready to go to heaven when you die. Of course. But what's it supposed to do right now? Today. Tomorrow. Next week. The rest of your earthly life. Well, it's supposed to be a divine takeover. (laughs) Is that big enough for you? Is that more powerful than just simply getting ready to go to heaven? I think so. Let's, uh, let's talk about where kingdom gospel starts in terms of followership, all right? At the cross, right at the beginning, right at the point of salvation, we've got to address the issue of our rebellious hearts. If we don't define sin as resisting God's rule, if we don't define it as going our own way and doing our own thing, then we go on into the Christian life doing our own thing and going our own way and thinking that's just fine because everybody else is doing it. We want, uh, right at the beginning, a humble submission to Jesus. He is Savior and He is Lord. He is forgiver and he is king. And the package goes together. You don't get Jesus as Savior without getting him as the king of the universe. (laughs) You've got to remember who he is. He is your Savior. He is the Lamb of God. But he is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It all starts with the salvation event and then it continues as a lifelong process. So what we're, we're talking about today is let's deal with the control issue right up front with people. Talk about it at the point of salvation when we're presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for you. Not just to forgive your sins but to give you the kingdom. In other words, His rule. That's why He put it the way He did. And that's where the power is. When He takes over in your life, He changes you. When you keep going your own way, you do not change. And you do not look like Him. You look like you. So maintaining it for a lifetime, is a process of repentance, a process of surrender, a process of submission, a process of humility before God, letting Him lead. But it all starts with salvation. So I'm, brothers and sisters, I'm appealing to you. Let's get on board with the Gospel of Jesus. He put it the way He put it so that the power of God, the power of the Kingdom of God, could be released. And when we dissect it and we say, no, you can accept Jesus without accepting the kingdom. You can accept Him as Savior, but you don't have to accept Him as King. That's idiocy. It's heresy. And it produces a horrible, horrible problem among us. Where actually the majority of us think We do not have to follow Jesus to be a Christian. All we need to do is believe in Him. And if that's where you're at, this message should scare you. And I hope it does. Because you need to be scared. Is this accurate to what Jesus taught? Am I making this up or am I just being sensational? Is this the gospel according to Jan Hedinga? Absolutely not. This is the way Jesus taught it. All right? So here's the, um, the story of in Luke chapter 10, or rather verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 10. Let me just quickly read this to you. Jesus is teaching on salvation, and he says this. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the 
Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. Laugh out loud. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I mean, they're all robbers and evildoers and adulterers. And I'm, look at this tax collector over here. I'm not like him. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. God, you're lucky to have me. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. He beat his breast. And he said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. So that's how we know this is about salvation. Because now we're talking about justification. You don't get saved without being justified. (laughs) This man went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself, like that Pharisee was doing, look at me, God, it's all about me. Aren't I something? You're lucky to have me. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Another way of saying, you fully yourself, you're lost. You empty yourself of self, you humble yourself, that's how you're exalted. That's how you're saved. When was the last time you described salvation being about pride or humility? Most of us don't do that. We haven't been trained that way. But if we pay attention to Jesus and what he teaches about salvation, that's the way we'll talk about it. Um, The Pharisee is full of himself. He's totally convinced he's superior to other people. He's self-righteous. He thinks he's really a good guy. And he's full of proud pride. He just, I'm somebody. His ego is out there a mile. All right? The question that Jesus is asking is, who is justified before God? I mean, he's using this extreme caricature. Pharisee on one side, publican, obvious sinner, tax collector, collaborator with the Romans on the other side. And the publican recognizes his sin. He confesses his sin. There's no sign of self-justification, humility. And Jesus says, the principle is this. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. That's about salvation, my friends. (laughs) That's about salvation. the way Jesus thought. All right, here's the uh, rebellious son, Luke chapter 15. I'm not going to read it. I'm going to tell it. Remember the guy, the kid, young man who didn't want to wait for his dad to die, and but he wanted his inheritance now because he wanted to enjoy it now. Well, he was young and full of juice and, you know, full of life, and he wanted to go out and live it up. And so he says, Dad, give me what's coming to me. And lo and behold, his dad says, okay, you got it. He divided his inheritance between the younger brother and the older brother. And the younger brother grabbed the bag of gold and headed for the far country. And he had a fantastic time. Wine, women, and song. Party time. And he blew it all. He went through it. And suddenly the money's gone and all the friends are gone. Party's over, and he doesn't have any place to go. Nobody will take him in. Nobody will return the favor (laughs) of sharing their inheritance with him. So he's in the pig pen. You remember the story. He's so hungry, he's drooling over the pig food. And the scripture says, he came to his senses, and he said, I will go back. I will confess to my Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. And I will humble myself. I will say, whatever job you've got, whatever servant job you need, I'll do it. 
Just let me come back. And the scripture says um, his father's response was rather amazing. He ran to his son, embraced him, threw his arms around him, kissed him, put their best robe on him, killed the fatted calf, had a celebration. Now, let me just stop right there. What do you think the father saw coming down the road? When he saw his son in the distance, what do you think he saw? Think he saw the same swagger that he saw when he left? Can you spot someone who's full of themselves? Are you good at that? Most of us are. Within a few minutes of conversation with somebody, you know whether they're full of themselves. Because if they're full of themselves, that's all they want to talk about is themselves. They don't ask any questions. They just tell you how great they are and how great their life is and how wonderful they are. Right? And the longer you're with them, the more of that you get. If you say, you know, I, I just bought a new car. It's a used car. Oh, wow, well, we, we just bought a Cadillac. Boy, it's a nice one. I mean, it's always one-upmanship, you know, that kind of thing. It's always what we have that is better than what you have. Um, all of that to say this. If this is a parable about God the Father and each of us as his children, let me tell you something. God has a nose for rebellion. And you can't fool him about that. And he doesn't play games with it. He loves you and he lets you rebel. You do have a free will. But when you come back to him, you do not come back to him the way you leave him. You do not come back saying, I'm still going to do my own thing. I'm going to go my own way. If you do not come back with a repentant spirit, if you do not come back acknowledging what you've done to Him, if you do not acknowledge that what you did in your rebellion was sin against Him and sin against heaven, don't expect the embrace of the Father. I know that I know that I know that when the Father saw that Son, He saw body language. He saw posture that told Him, this kid's broken. This is a different kid. He's coming back, but he's not coming back the way he left. And he ran to him. And in mercy and grace and compassion, he embraced him. You're mine. Because sanity had been restored. This, this kid came home with a repentant heart. And the father could smell it a mile away. And God is always looking for that in all of us, in all of his children. He's always looking for a repentant heart. So the principle is this. Grace flows to the humble. He was proud. He comes home humble. Grace is given. There's a lot of people in uh, our day who have been teaching that it's a mystery as to who gets grace. Somehow God just decides that some people are going to get saved and other people are going to be lost. And who knows what's in the mind of God. You know, God just arbitrarily makes those decisions based on his infinite wisdom. That's a crazy idea. God is God. And he doesn't make decisions based on what we want. But I'll tell you this, he very clearly spells out who gets grace. God resists who? The proud. That's an axiom in Scripture. It's in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament. It's repeated over and over and over. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And what's always the next verse? 
Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He might exalt you in due time. Who does God exalt? The proud? He resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Are you able to humble yourself? Apparently you are, because God tells you to. He would not command you to humble yourself if you couldn't do it. So he says, okay, you humble yourself. Let's do business. I'll give you all the grace you need. In fact, I think that as soon as in your mind you start thinking, I will humble myself, like the young man did in the pig pen, God's grace pours out in your life by the the Holy Spirit and it gives you the capacity to humble yourself, to continue to humble yourself. But that broken and contrite heart is the heart that has stopped resisting the reign and the rule of God. It's welcomed his authority and his leadership. And God gives grace on that basis. I don't think you'll find anything else in Scripture unless you distort Scripture and say, no, you get grace arbitrarily. God's Word ties it to humility. I'm sorry. Now, let's, let's just close with this. Is this a principle? I think so. Jesus' invitation is, come to me and um, take my yoke upon you. I'll give you rest. There's a spectrum of human hearts that respond to the invitation of Jesus. The, the black, ra- rugged hearts are the hard hearts. The, the soft, rounded hearts are um, the people who are, more, are much more receptive. Everybody is on that line. Your heart is on that line. It's a spectrum. Everybody in this room is somewhere. Your heart is somewhere on that line. If you're headed toward the soft heart, um, you're, you're poor in spirit, according to Jesus. If you're headed toward the hard heart, you're rich toward self, according to Jesus. That's the language he used. So the rich towards self are independent. They're full of self-sufficiency. They're usually the winners in society. Uh, They have much to lose. They have material possessions, wealth, notoriety, uh, position, power. And they are usually very close to God. In, In Jesus' day, who was it that resisted his message? The upper crust, right? The people in power, the people in control of the religion, the people in control of the country resisted him, by and large. All right, who was it that responded? The contrite, the brokenhearted, the bruised and crushed, the oppressed. They were open to God. The one side you have pride, the other side you have humility. What has God been saying throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament about the kind of heart he's looking for? A broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. David said it over and over and over in the Psalms. Words to that effect. God, I know what kind of heart. That's why he's called a man with a heart for God. A heart after God. God is looking for... Did David sin? Oh, yes, he was a terrible sinner. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. What did he do with his sin? He acknowledged it. He confessed it. He repented. His heart was broken by what he had done. Genuinely repentant. And that's what God is looking for. He's always responsive to humility. Now, when it comes to pride, what did he call the proud in his day? (laughs) What did he call the Pharisees? You nest of snakes. Can you hear Jesus saying that? You, you sepulcher, you grave. You're painted on the outside and you're full of corruption on the inside. You blind leaders of the blind. 
Jesus is evangelizing Pharisees. Quite an appeal, isn't it? But he's confronting pride with power and force and authority. And that's the only thing that Jesus knows to do with pride. All right. How did he respond to the humble? You remember? What about the woman taken in adultery? What did he say to this woman? Where are your accusers? They accused her of adultery. They were about to stone her. They were going to stone her right in front of Jesus. They wanted Jesus to help stone her. Remember he wrote in the dust, probably writing out some of their sins. Gradually they left one by one. He turns to the woman, where are your accusers? She says, I don't know, Lord. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He didn't say, neither do I condemn you. Whether you keep going in sin or not, doesn't matter. I'm merciful and gracious and forgiving. And you can be an adulterer and be one of my children. Is that what he did? No. He said, neither do I. You're broken. You're shamed. You were on the, on the, on the verge of dying because of your sin. I do not condemn you, but don't. Do this again. You think she got the message? Yeah. I mean, did she feel the embrace? Yeah. Of mercy, compassion, forgiveness? Yeah, she did. Okay. I believe that the Holy Spirit's at work in this room. I think this message is convicting. As I'm preaching it, it's convicting me. Because I still struggle with personal rebellion. I always have. It's my issue. It's the center of my sin. It's what I am in the natural man, apart from Jesus Christ. I'm a rebel. I don't like that about myself. But I do not like anybody telling me what to do. I like to do my own thing my way. I like to run my own life. I really do. So a message like this convicts me. It's actually hard to say some of these things. Because I'm not finished following Jesus yet. I'm still in process. But I know this. That when God gets more of me, I get more of Him. I know this for sure. When, When I give Him fresh surrender. It releases His power in my life. I get graced to become more like Jesus. I get the power to obey and to keep on obeying. But it's the only way I've ever found to actually have a transformed life. When He is given leadership and I Follow him. That's my role. I'm one of his sheep. He's my shepherd. I follow my shepherd. The leadership issue's been resolved, but then I contest it over and over again. But I know this the Holy Spirit has been speaking today. He's been dealing with because this is our issue. This is this is what we do or don't do. That makes it all work or doesn't work. I'm going to ask you to do this. As we close our eyes and as we pray together, would you offer Jesus fresh surrender today? You know where. You, you know what the issues are. You know where you've been saying no. You know where you've been insisting on your own way. You know where your pride is involved and your self-sufficiency and I'm okay the way I am. You know where that is. Would you just take the risk Make the move of offering him fresh surrender. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, some of us have tried to tried to do the Christian life without this process of surrender. 
of daily submission to you. And so we, we've not followed very well. We've been uh, on again and off again. We've done some following and, and we've done a lot of rebelling, even in our Christian life. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do something supernatural right now, that you would break down the hardness of our hearts, that you would bring us to a place of voluntary humility. Lord, would you just simply take us into your kingdom. Release your kingdom, your reign in us. Release your government in us. May we become part of your realm where you are God. More than ever before. Lord, do a miracle. Do a powerful, recreative, transformational thing in all of our hearts today as we respond to this message. We respond to your word. We respond to Jesus as we respond to the Spirit. Take over, Lord. Take over today. Take over again tomorrow. Lead us. And we will follow. Lord Jesus, you've heard our hearts. Uh, I've been praying for everybody, but everybody also has to pray in their own their own heart. Lord, there's teenagers here today who are struggling with rebellion. Would you break that down? Would, would, right now, would you bring the strongest possible conviction that that is evil, that it is sin, that it's dangerous, and that it's anti-Christ? Lord, there's a lot of adults in this room who've played games with you and given you leadership and then taken it back and given you leadership and taken it back. And we've paid a penalty for that. We've, we've had mediocre Christian lives and kind of boring Christian lives. A lot of the time we just go through the motions and go to church. Lord, I pray that you will release the dynamic power of the gospel in us as we re-surrender to you, as we give you the right to take your place on the throne of our hearts. And Lord, make us exciting believers. Make us dynamic followers. God, I pray that this church would be a supernatural group of believers who the people who know us can only describe it as people who are filled with the living God. And Lord, I pray that this will not be the average, ordinary, mundane insipid, lukewarm kind of Christian church. Lord, may this be one of the most exciting churches in the country because you are alive and you are in control. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.